Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the All Might Be Edified Discussions on Servant Leadership. I'm Keith Pankow, the host of this podcast, and I have the wonderful privilege to be here with Andrea Davis. Andrea has been in the field of crisis management since 1999, starting in the nonprofit sector, developing the Y2K crisis response plans. And then Andrea went on to serve at the city and county of San Francisco and in the U.S. federal government as emergency manager for the 12th district federal reserve bank and as the external affairs director for the federal emergency management agency louisiana's recovery office for hurricane katrina while at fema andrea oversaw all media intergovernmental and congressional activities for one of the u.s's largest disaster recovery efforts with a total recovery portfolio of over 25 billion for the past 10 years andrea has led global enterprise-wide crisis management departments for multinational fortune 50 companies the walt disney company and the Walmart Corporation. Currently, she is the founder and CEO of the SBA-certified woman-owned crisis management consulting firm, The Resiliency Initiative. Andrea's passion is volunteer service, which led her to selection as the inaugural Emergency Manager of the Year by the International Association of Emergency Managers in 2018, and her induction into the Women's Hall of Fame for Emergency Management in 2013. Andrea is currently serving as the board chair of the Northwest Arkansas American Red Cross and a founding member of the Arkansas Tiffany Circle. So glad you could be here today. Thank you so much, Keith. It's an honor to be here. Well, you have a wonderful resume, and I met you at a actually one of those inter- international emergency manager conferences, and when you were still at the Walt Disney Company. And I remember just thinking, "Wow, I had no idea that Walt Disney was doing so much emergency management." And that year, I think there was somewhere in the double digits of incident management teams or incident management centers kind of set up throughout the world, you know, spanning from China to to Mexico to the U.S. and all sorts of different things. And I was just in awe. And with a relatively small team, you did quite a bit of work. And I've done emergency management with the Coast Guard for quite a while. And we usually have a much larger team. And we usually focus on a much smaller region based on our expertise or where we're stationed. And so I was just amazed at the breadth of all that you were doing at the Disney company and just what you've done throughout your career. So how was that experience kind of working with such a small team for such a global region? Oh, thanks, Keith. And I totally remember when I met you at IEM, I think it was that that year, it felt like back-to-back crisis after crisis, obviously until 2020, (laughs) we were all consumed. (laughs) And I really went into the job with Disney with a similar sentiment as you of just like, what does Disney do in emergency management? I was like, what kind of problems does Mickey have? And I really, like I joined Disney from FEMA and I threw my name in the hat for the job just out of, on a whim because I was truly like, I don't know what this role would be like. I don't think I could really, even at the time, comprehend like emergency management for the private sector. And so like, I remember going through the interview process and then truly starting to understand the scale of Disney. I had no idea like their presence around the globe. I mean, I could remember the theme parks, you know, probably in in Paris and in Hong Kong. But then when you lay on top of that, just some of the entertainment side, like owning one of the largest production companies in India. And then one of my first trips for the company was going to India, to Mumbai, India, and working with the executive teams to build just a simple crisis management structure so they could respond to something happened while they were producing one of their TV shows. And so I remember just being so enamored with this opportunity of like this massive 
entity and trying to figure out a way, how do you build a program for that? Because like you said, I had a small team based in predominantly in the United States out on the West Coast and on the East Coast. But then I had to build a structure that actually leveraged the expertise across the globe. And so how we, what our focus was making sure that every cast member, crewmate, if you were in a cruise ship, um, or if you were with ESPN, a teammate, like that they understood their role in a time of crisis and that they received the tools that they needed to be able to plan and prepare for that. So we really took a very focused approach to making it all associates had a role in a time of crisis and all associates had an obligation to prepare for that because it not only helped the company, right, at large, but them as individuals. Because we know, Keith, like if a, an associate or cast member isn't prepared, personally prepared, they're not going to be a good employee like during a time of crisis because they, you're always going to think of your family first. And I wanted to leverage that. That's actually good sentiments. We want to create an environment where everybody can be able to secure their family and then help out the company. And I took that same philosophy with me to when I joined Walmart and it, it really worked well. And I'm very fortunate. I would say both at Disney and at Walmart, I had the support from the top, the top of the company to like push this philosophy of like everybody has a role to support during a crisis. Thanks for that. It's a wonderful answer and so much depth there. And your uh, first thing you said, I almost had a chuckle because I forgot that year we met was a very big, busy year for disasters. <laughs> and that's why you were so busy that year with Walt Disney. And we'd been busy in the Coast Guard as well. And I think a lot of different organizations have been busy, but you know, 2020 has changed our reality of what busy looks like. I think forever, right? we had the global pandemic. I had you know, 10 name storms in the Gulf that I worked mm -hmm. that year and while we're dealing with the global pandemic. So forever, my perception of what a busy crisis management year looks like will forever be changed. But until that, you're right, that was an extremely busy year that I completely forgot how busy it was and only just a couple of years ago, to be honest. Right? So. We really thought like 2017, it could never be that bad again because <laughs> it was the back-to-back -back hurricanes. And then obviously the California wildfires were heating up for us and the, the terrible Las Vegas shooting. I mean, it was just, it was one of those years of like, oh, this won't ever happen again until we get to an unthinkable layering of crisis. Like you said, after we got into a pace with COVID and then obviously with the civil unrest and then into the Greek alphabet for hurricanes in 2020, and then the, the winter storm that came up from Texas all the way to the East Coast. For, at Walmart, that ended up being our largest natural disaster response in Walmart's history was the winter storm because wow. it was so unexpected and took us out all the while still dealing with COVID. <laughs> That's amazing. And, you know, it's interesting the perspective you bring because we all deal with these emergencies from our own you know, personal perspectives and our organizational perspectives. And my 2020 was very different than your 2020, although both of ours were very busy, but we have these different perspectives. And the winter storm for me was obviously not a big deal. The civil unrest was a big deal for all of us, um, but it, it impacted us in different ways. How yeah. close were we, how close were we there? How deeply did I feel 
the emotions of that based on my own background or the people I know and work with and care for. So the, all these things kind of impact us in different ways. And you touched on something in your first response about taking people and recognizing that they all think of their family first and leveraging that. And you hinted that you work to build their capacity to make them better prepared so that they could be better response individuals, better crisis management individuals, and and also not worry about their family anymore. And so I really love this idea of building capacity with people because the more capacity we build with people, the more we can expand our reach and our ability to help others. So how do you look at somebody and recognize what they think their potential is, but then see how you can expand upon that to build even greater capacity within an individual? Well, I think a lot of times, and I've been kind of in a management leadership role now for a while is that you sometimes get blinders on with your, like, these are the priorities we have to do. This is uh, the objectives that we have to meet. And you don't take that step back and truly know your team and what's important to them. I've had few leaders actually ask me what I want, where I see myself. And I did not want to be that type of leader. I wanted to really know what's important to my team. And I don't think you can get to capacity if you don't know what's important to your your teammates. And if you can find out really just in short conversations, Keith, of like knowing that these are their core values and this is what they can bring to the table. And that's invaluable because if you don't ask those questions, you actually don't know who's around your table and you don't know what you're missing. And then you can't build you know, a, a team, a solid team without that information. So I always really try to take a step back and really get to know folks and what's their priorities. Because in the business that we do, like in emergency management, I think, again, it's sometimes a miss when you're constantly putting out fires, if you're constantly in that response mode, if you don't take that step back to see like, to build my capacity of my team, to know what's truly important to them, to make sure they feel safe, their family feels safe. I'm just not going to have somebody who's going to be able to support me. I'm not going to have somebody who's resilient. I don't know what's important to them. And I also don't know what they fear, right? And so, because I haven't asked those questions. And true, getting somebody to the place of like, realizing we can't control the bad day. And we certainly learned that, you know, that who knows when the aliens are going to evade at this point, but it's just like, so we can't control that. We know there's a given that something bad will happen at some point, And it's going to look very different to all of us. But to get to this idea of resiliency is that I have confidence. I will know what to do because one, my boss has empowered me to take care of myself and my family. And then I can show up then to work and bring my best self because I know I add value. And I think it's a simple, like almost nuances on just how we interact with people. And I actually feel COVID forced us to communicate better and interact in different ways to get to know each other through all of this, because no longer can we go into the hallway and gossip and kind of like segregate ourselves. We had to, we had to get on Zooms. We had to talk to each other. We had to come off camera, (laughs) you know, we had to get all of us out of our comfort zone. But I think it takes a true leader to ask those hard questions and make sure to stand by their team and say, this is what's important to us to build. And it's, it's hard, especially if you don't have leadership support to do that. 
Yeah, I agree. You know, the Coast Guard, obviously, we're a, a massive search and rescue organization. I'm not a true search and rescue professional, but I've learned a thing or two about search and rescue over the years. And we use this software called SARops for search and rescue operations. And so we use this software basically to help us calculate where we can find people needing assistance for search and rescue. And it's a, we have this statistic that we use called probability of success or POS. And so a POS percentage comes out on our search pattern whenever we put in these characteristics. And it's very interesting to me, if I plug in a person in the water with no PFD, personal flotation device, or a personal flotation device without reflective material on it or whatever, the percentage, the, the POS, the percentage of success or the probability of success is usually less than 5%, maybe two or 3% wow. of us finding them uh, is usually what it comes down to. Now, if I start to add things onto that reflective clothing, or if I have a boat, or if I have a last known location, if I start to know more and more about them, that probability of success rises and rises. And it's interesting, the bigger the object, the more information I have, I can get that probability of success in the 90s to 99 percentage in a lot of cases. But it takes understanding what that individual has, where they are, and what they, you know, all about them. And I think that there's application for everything you just talked about is I have to dial in and then, and then create the support around them the vessel, yeah. if you will, the flotation devices to buoy them up to make them more successful. And then another interesting thing that comes with that is when I don't know where they are, I usually have to start with either where they were or where they're going. And if I know both of those things, I can come up with a really good track line. But if I don't know those things, I don't know where they were or where they're going, and I don't know much about them, I'm usually not going to find that individual and be successful yeah. in rescuing them. Yeah, you're totally right. And I, like I said, I, I feel sometimes, you know, leaders can have blinders on, on the importance of that and not investing in like the professional development or getting to know their team. And it's a lost art because your employees are your most precious commodity, Right. And that's what's going to keep your business going, whether you're nonprofit, you are a public servant, or you're in the private sector. It doesn't matter that the heart of the issue is that you have to focus on your team and making sure that they have what they need to succeed, because that's your success. And I always thought, I always kind of like found it fascinating as I've kind of gone through my career, because you definitely know the bad ones, right? Your bad bosses through the years and good bosses sometimes feel like you don't get them very often <laughs> and but you know what makes them great because they took a moment to ask you about you and that's what I always wanted to kind of emulate I wanted to be that I wanted to be the good boss I didn't want to be the bad <laughs> sadly still are out there <laughs> yeah that what a great noble goal to have too and and to use your own experiences to what you like as a good starting point but then I think sometimes too we have to I actually remember, and it was either a sidebar conversation or you were saying something to someone else and I was just eavesdropping when we were when there, but you were talking about how you had to model your, even your information sharing or different things you did for differences in China and Hong Kong or differences in, in India. And so I love this idea that you were so focused on communicating appropriately for the culture and community and the workforce that you were. And I think that, you know, starting with what we like is a great starting point, but I think yeah. you've modeled you know, some great behavior in your past of, of recognizing that 
the people we work with from these many different cultural influences, they might have specific differences that need to be addressed in different ways. And so I wonder, is this something that comes naturally to you or is it something that you've had to work at? How do you focus on, you know, integrating a multicultural workforce? Well, that's really a great question because I, I feel like I learned by doing poorly. <laughs> and so like, I'm going to give an example, kind of an extreme example from my professional career. But when I went to FEMA and to work in the Katrina um, recovery office, I had applied probably to 20 different jobs for the FEMA office. I fell in love with New Orleans. I fell in love with the recovery effort. I wanted to work there so bad because I felt it could help. I've been doing this type of work for a while. I got my roots in San Francisco, doing community planning, working with different cultures, knowing the value of it. And, and that's, that's how I got my roots. So I was just like, I can do this. I can do this. And we looked in Google, the response did not go well. The recovery did not go well for many years. And it's a true like study and to like what not to do. I finally get the job as external affairs director at this, so this is year five post Katrina. There's a new president who's coming down in about a month. Um, the BP oil spill had just occurred, wiping out a third of the fishing industry, and they needed somebody to come tell the story of the recovery. That hadn't really happened. I'm so excited, Keith. I get in my car in San Francisco. I have two suitcases and I, my cat, Mr. Boo, and we drive across country and I get to New Orleans and I say, I'm here. And I'm here to save the day because I know exactly what you all need. And if you could pin one thing wrong, and there are many, about the federal government's approach to the response, was they never really knew, understood the needs of the communities throughout that were impacted. They didn't ask also what were the needs. And so I come in and I'm doing the exact same thing. Within two days, Casey were calling me Frisco Red. They hated me. And so I had to learn like super quick that even though I had best of intentions, I was exhibiting the exact same behaviors that I hate about telling people what to do and not listening. So I completely, I did a 180. I was so fortunate. I had an amazing boss who liked my crazy ideas of going into the communities and doing like town halls, getting community engagement. And this was five years after still one of the United States largest natural disasters, absolutely devastating. People were not victimized just once, but multiple times. There was no trust. And I mean, they threw things at us and, and it's understandable, but then to have the courage, which my boss did to, to really say, we want to rectify this. We want to help you. We are here to listen. It completely transformed. By the time I left, which is maybe it was a, a couple years later, there were 300 groundbreakings. Like the, it really pushed forward the recovery effort that needed to happen. And it was something so simple. And so Keith, I learned the hard way. And so I didn't want to take, when I left FEMA to go to, to Disney, I knew taking on this global role where I traveled in the seven years with Disney to 49 different countries. I had to take, be more on a listening mission than anything. I might have the subject matter expertise of why that I got the job, but I needed to be make sure I was culturally relevant because certainly how you approach emergency management in Japan may be very different in India or Russia. Like it was very, very different approaches. 
and even just on a, a personal level, like how you know a female would be perceived and how the word choices I use, I really made a very serious effort to just like learn and, and ask for feedback and really rely on kind of our local teams to like help guide me. And I was, I was successful in that because I listened. I learned my lesson one um, and after getting beat up. And, and I think a lot of times people sometimes don't learn lessons when you're being, it's right there telling you how you need to change your approach. So I was really fortunate that I did learn it. And then I had some really great people to help me. And that I'm so proud of the program that was created at Disney. It's, it's still standing after all this time. And just, we got so much buy-in because we tailored it to the local needs. And that's an, an approach I'm gonna take with me to the, the rest of my life. And I'm hoping to do that with my, my business now is just like everything needs to be driven locally. And we can't just say the words. And we always say that as emergency managers, all disasters are local, but actually do that. Are the right people around the table? Do we have different perspectives around the table? And if the answer is no, and you're not constantly asking that question, we're not doing our job. And that's the only way you get to community resiliency is that everybody has a voice at that table. I agree. I love that comment. Such wonderful content there to really tailor it to the community. And you're so right. I think about, we talk about incident command system, ICS, <laughs> how it's supposed to be scalable, but we always come in with these very top heavy bureaucracies and we you know, come in very heavy handed and we're like, look, we're here to save the day, as you said. Yeah. And too often we don't ask these questions or have the right conversations with people or even get the local expertise of what, you know, how, mm. what works, what doesn't work or, or things like that. And so, you know, there's these lessons that have been learned over time that we have to relearn because we're too unwilling to ask the right questions sometimes. And having pretty good knowledge of Louisiana and Katrina and the oil spill and many things in between and since, I appreciate what you were talking about there and how there was definitely a difference that happened, you know, after those first five years or so, and it started yeah. to get better, but it was a long process because of that bureaucracy. And I think there's probably a lot of listeners out there that feel that they're in an organization that might be overly bureaucratic, or it might be hard to enact change. They might not have the support that you had to make some errors and still create turnaround. And a lot of times bureaucracy can get, be very difficult to make a 180 and to change direction. So what advice do you have to people in these environments where they want to make a difference, they want to help people, but they just feel stuck? And it's so hard. And even though I've been with the private sector now for the past 10 years, things were major companies, right? Disney and Walmart, they're massive. They're very much bureaucratic. I it didn't feel a change leaving FEMA <laughs> to come to the private sector world. And so it is hard, especially, you know, you sometimes feel you may not be at the right level to even feel like, hey, I have an idea or a voice. And my advice is, is it comes from within, right? Find, finding your voice. And if you have an idea, there's someone at your company, at your government um, job that will hear you. And stay the course and, and find those leaders, right? Find those other or like-minded individuals that have a similar idea. Start a club, start, start your own um, like committee to address this, you know, and, and just get yourself FaceTime in front of different types of people. Most um, government agencies have monthly town halls. Try to get it on the agenda. 
to pitch your idea or just get find a, a sounding board to like talk you through and find that person who's going to encourage you or like say like, hey, let's brainstorm this a little bit. Maybe you don't want to go down this path, but you want to go down this path. There's always people out there because I know because I exist, keep you exist, right? <laughs> that, that, that have hit that wall. And I would just say, you know, as advice, I hit that wall so many times. I'm just one of those people that maybe isn't smart enough to not keep hitting it. But don't give up. If you, if you get a no initially, and a lot of times it's your direct chain of command, there, keep going. It, maybe you had to park and lot that idea because you got to put food on the table and you can't lose your job. But keep your ideas warm and there will be the right time, the right person to help you through that and keep looking for them. And they don't actually always have to be in your kind of your immediate universe. If you're in a large agency, a large company, you know, there's different types of um, ways you can engage other leaders. I will accept, and obviously this was when I was with Walmart and Disney, somebody pops on my calendar, coffee, um, or just now a Zoom coffee, 15 minutes, get to know somebody and where they want to go and help them. That's awesome. See, most people will say yes. Reach out to them on LinkedIn, find ways. There's so many ways to do that. Don't Just don't give up. Yeah, thanks for that. And so many different abstract ways to approach solving a problem. You know, getting on a town hall meeting agenda, looking at different things, yeah. you know, as someone who's hit a wall and as someone who usually is a jackhammer to every wall I come up against, I can tell you that's not the best way to approach every wall you encounter. Sometimes just as you kind of hinted at moving along the wall till you find the right door can be the yeah. right way to get through and break through. And a lot of times the jackhammer is not going to break through the wall without creating lots of debris and damage. And so that's one of the challenges. And some sometimes that's the way you have to go through a wall. And if it's that minority of a of the time, then then do what you have to do. But I agree with Andrea that kind of moving around in a way that helps you find a, a door to move through is probably a better way to move through and continue to move upward. Yeah. And there's that- always, there's always something, there's a mouse hole. There's something. <laughs> and because I'm I'm like you keep like the redhead can come out. <laughs> And obviously, as I've gotten older, I've gotten a little bit better of navigating the wall. <laughs> but just, you know, just trying to, like you said, you don't want to cause debris. Um, you don't want to cause harm. And you also don't want to impact your reputation and, and how you're being perceived. Don't let anybody ever take that from you. You know, what you've worked so hard for, just because someone might be small-minded or closed-minded or whatever the issue is, you stay the course as professionalism. And sometimes... You have to make bold decisions that this is not the right place for you and you have to leave. And that that can suck, but then it can also open so many doors to opportunities if you can find your footing and make the jump to do it. I agree. And sometimes if you're really, really stuck, that might be the only way you're going to get to where you need to be is by taking that leap of faith and moving on. So it goes back to not only knowing where the people you work with are at, but you have to know where you're at too. You have to take those those times to look around at your surroundings, your environment, assess where you are at emotionally, where you're at physically, where you're at spiritually, all of these things matter, you know, from a holistic approach to how we can move forward. So really taking those times to assess and see where you're at, I think helps with what your new endeavor is this, the resiliency project. I love this name. I love everything about resiliency. I've studied it a little and I continue to be fascinated by different levels in resiliency in communities and people and organizations. And there's usually these common threads about things that are resilient. 
And so as you take on this new initiative, this new project to move on and, and like we were telling other people to do, you found a, a time to wall, you made a jump, a leap of faith, you're starting your own new business, the, the resiliency initiative. So or the resiliency project. So talk about that a little bit. And, you know, what were your motivations? What do you hope to bring to the with that and all sorts of stuff? Oh, thanks, Keith, for, for mentioning it. I'm at this. So this is the beginning of week two for me doing my own thing. And I am both terrified and excited at the same moment. Yeah, it's a big jump. I've always worked for somebody since I was like 10 years old. My dad had a diner. So I've always worked for another person. So this opportunity to be my own boss is exciting and attractive. And I have employee number one, so that's exciting. And so the reason why I wanted to do it is I got my roots, as I mentioned, um, in San Francisco doing community planning. And at the time it was for Y2K, you know, because the world was ending and everybody needed kind of to have a, a business plan around that or a continuity plan. And to me, you don't have a good business plan if you don't have continuity of operations part of that. And so I saw the value years ago in, in making sure that all facets of the community had just the basics of emergency planning. And I really want to return to my roots because after we saw what happened in COVID to the small business community, especially, it was devastating. And I had many individuals who got friends that got laid off, past teammates. And I had started um, the Resiliency Initiative in late 2019. And so I was able to put them to work, helping local businesses figure out how they're going to stay in business. And I, they, we had such diversity. We had a, a writing stable. We had a dance studio. We had the Girl Scouts all looking for ways to like keep going. And, and they did. We helped them. We were able to keep them operating in a time where so many businesses were losing everything and having to lay off their employees. And that was an amazing feeling, Keith, uh, to just see it work. And that was that was totally not even doing it like part-time because I had my crazy full-time job with Walmart at the time. This was letting, you know, some old friends just take the reins of my business. And I, the UN, United Nations was looking for companies and nonprofits to help plan their big annual uh, disaster risk conference. This year, it's going to be in Bali in May. I threw my name in the hat and was selected. And so I thought it was a sign from the universe that, hey, I think your heart is somewhere else. And I just, now that I, on a global scale, I'm going to be able, because the cohort I helped plan was really kind of taking down silos between the private sector and the and government to help with not only just looking at disaster risk reduction from just like from a mitigation standpoint, but just the basics. Our business is even around the table when you're talking about disaster risk and including them and making sure that they have plans to stay in business. Because I uh, what I have in my mind is my dad's diner, and we were lucky we had a fire extinguisher for the grill. That was the extent of emergency preparedness. So if I can convince my dad to have to think about tomorrow and planning a little bit, I figure I can help others. <laughs> so that's going to be my goal, you know, and, I, and I'm going to give it my best, best shot for sure. Well, what a wonderful way to start out by doing the UN conference in Bali. I <laughs> so I can't think of anyone better suited for this. Your energy, your passion, your experience are all phenomenal assets to the community, to everything. And I'm excited. I've loved watching you since we first met at that conference because 
you bring this passion and energy to crisis management that I think invites people to think about resiliency. And it, it really does encourage people to come together. And I've appreciated watching that. And it's helped me evaluate some of my own thoughts and practices as well. So I look forward to all that you have to bring to the table. And with that, I kind of want to leave us with a challenge because I love everything Andrea's doing. She's jumping off. She's taking this huge risk. She's going off on this new adventure. But I think it really starts with that self-assessment of are you where you th- you think you should be at the moment. And if you're not, think about what do you need to do to get where you need to be? Whether that's in your same organization you're with, your same family situation you're in, whatever it is, are you aware you should be? And what do you need to do to get there? And then the last thing I'll say about that is oftentimes we talk about, I'm like Andrea, I try to check in with my people, see where they are, where they're going, but I've had plenty of bosses that don't do that. And what did I do? I complain. Well, my boss doesn't really care about me. Well, I invite you to initiate that conversation with your bosses if they're not having those conversations. Give them an opportunity to lead in a better way or to ask questions they might not naturally feel comfortable asking so that you can have a better dialogue with them and allow them to be a better version of themselves too. Because I think a big aspect of servant leadership is helping all the people around us be the best versions of themselves. And that's not just the people we're in charge of. Sometimes you have to lead up. Sometimes you have to lead down. Sometimes you lead across that horizontal line, but whatever you can do to help people recognize they're not necessarily being the best version of themselves, I invite you to do that. Well, Andrea, as you move on to the United Nations, what are some of this is an organization that we've talked about, I think sometimes gets a bad rap in the media. They do a ton of amazing things throughout the world. They expand resources to, to many people that don't have access to resources. What do you kind of envision you, do you measure your role expanding with this from there, or how do you see this kind of natural partnership growing in the future? I'm so excited about it because, um, you know, I've worked for all these massive bureaucracies and I am now going to the world's largest. And so I, I feel like I must have a little bit of a knack of maneuvering through them. And I'm, I'm hoping I can just bring just that, the kind of fresh eyes and a different approach to thinking about it because it's a massive organization. And just by doing this, this conference and helping plan the cohort focused on this, it's, it was a conversation that wasn't being happening. And so just to have the forethought, we need to bring these people together to have the conversation. And a lot of times people, like you said, don't value that because you don't see that. You don't see what it took to get these people to the table to even start this, to think about it and to have this conference. You know, and, and there will always be when you're dealing with a massive organization, the negativity side of it. And of like, well, why are you spending energy on this conference when we're dealing with all these global issues? And it's kind of just keeping that focus on like what we've been talking about, that focus on the individual and building the resiliency. And if you don't start digging deeper than just constantly pushing, you know, dealing with issue after issue or fire after fire, you're never going to get to change. And it's just having these conversations. And so I'm hoping this is the beginning of a conversation um, that keeps going, especially about engaging, you know, the small businesses and just business community as a whole, because we're one community at the end of the day. Hey, Katrina taught us that. It didn't matter. It didn't matter where, what aspect of the community you are. You can't build just certain components of it. If your entire sewer system's gone, your roads are gone. You just, you don't have a community. If you're a business and you, you um, everybody's evacuated, um, you've lost all your customers. You don't have a community. So getting to this true sense of 
like we will only be resilient for what's coming our way. Cause like you said, there's more coming. It seemed to be more frequent. They seem to be much more challenging and difficult unless we start shoring up our greatest resource, which is humans. And, and it goes back and I love your challenge, Keith, about it starts with you, that individual asking yourself, are you in the right place? And what can you do to get yourself to that right place? I love it. And yes, I, I feel strongly that we sometimes don't have the right conversations. We have a lot of destructive conversations sometimes. Uh, climate change is a perfect example. We have people that say the world's ending and we have people that say there's no such thing as climate change. And it seems that we don't ever want to talk about what's going on in the middle and what it means or how we can be more resilient. And I think more often than not, as, as opposed to disputing things like that, I think it's better to focus on the people, that number one resource and how we can help them become more resilient. And that looks different ways for different communities and different people. And I applaud what you're going to do with the United Nations. And because that widens your opportunity to make more people more resilient. And, and I hope that more of us can do that. I hope we can look at ways we can help build capacity. I think as Shanna Farmer said on her episode that with the United Way in Pueblo County, she said their goal now is to build capacity because they can't meet all mm-hmm. the needs. And none of us are ever going to meet all the needs we face in life, but we can help others meet more needs and they can help others meet more needs. And then if we do that, there's an exponential effect in building resiliency and capacity and increasing resources for those that might not have access to resources. Exactly. And just constantly asking who's missing, who is not here, knowing your true um, community and like who might just not be represented around the table, I think is really important. That diversity and making sure, especially in emergency management, getting true, true equitable responses. So we just don't see one population of individuals getting resources and just a blind eye to everybody else. I think we all have to hold ourselves accountable for that to make sure, and you can do that at any level. It doesn't matter if you're a CEO or you are you know, a cashier at, at Walmart, it doesn't matter. You can do that, you can make change. Because if you hold yourself accountable saying that isn't right, this person needs to have a voice, that's how we get there. Yeah, what a wonderful approach to considering the representation, the answers, the diversity, but that question of who's missing. I love it. Yeah. You know, thinking about it as you sit down to develop your plan. If you start with that question, who's missing? I'm sure you'll think of somebody or an organization yeah. or a viewpoint that is vital to your initiative that you can bring to the table. And so I love that. Well, we've had a wonderful conversation, Andrea. I've just loved having you. We're about done here, but I always like to ask, is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with before we wrap up today? Just a thank you to you, Keith, for this opportunity. It's my first podcast, so I hope everybody liked it. And just, I am been one of those people who's really benefited from others supporting me through my career. And so I just want to put that out there. If you're, you know, feel stuck or you need just a sounding board, I'm there. I will be your mentor and friend. I'm just Andrea at the resiliencyinitiative.com. Thanks so much, Andrea, and spoken like a true servant leader, which I know you are, and I've experienced since I first met you, and I've, I can back that suggestion up, that invitation that she provided, because she has shown that to be true to me, and I've, I've loved just watching you grow, because you're very deserving, and you're a wonderful asset to 
all the communities you're a part of. And so thanks so much for being here, Andrea. Thanks so much, all of you for listening. And I hope that you truly continue to think about this concept of servant leadership and how you can help bring out the best in all the people around you to make the best of all of our organizations, communities, and families. And please share, like, and subscribe to the podcast. And let me know if there's anything I can do to make it even better and have a wonderful day. Thanks, Keith.